over a span of 2,000 years, 40 authors on three different continents and in three different languages penned 66 books, all of which were supernaturally inspired and intricately designed as God's revelation to man. The spoken word of God, living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, recorded and bound just for us. Join us on a journey from Genesis to Revelation, all 66 books, the big book, cover to cover. This is Michael Easley in Context. Welcome back to Michael Easley in Context, and again, we're so thrilled to have Dr. Mark Chevalis back on the broadcast. We appreciate Mark's contribution on the book of Judges and the book of Numbers, and we recently recorded him on the book of Obadiah, and now we're going for four because we got him again on the book of Micah. So welcome back, Dr. Chevalis. It's very nice to be with you. All right, so Doc, let's jump into the book of Micah. This is the 33rd book, the way we count the books of the Bible in our organization of the Old Testament. He is, again, considered a minor prophet, and there are so many things going on here. We've got Jotham and Ahaz and Hezekiah. It's probably addressed to the southern kingdom Judah, but you might have a little more expansion on that. We know that he's a contemporary of Isaiah, Amos, and Hosea. Is that correct? It appears that he must be. That's for sure. Since in the superscription we have those particular kings that are roughly dated between around 750 and around 685 or so BC, give or take a year or two or three. So I doubt if he was prophesying for all 65 of those years, but certainly in that context is Micah. The big question is, of course, is each prophetic oracle to what is he referring? And that's an issue that I'll be going into. So let's jump into that. This is a complicated book when it comes to organization and structure. And we might say there are 20 separate sections. Some enumerate them differently. When I taught through the book, I tried to give a simple handle and say, let's look at three basic oracles or messages to kind of group them together. We see the cadence of the so-called Shema here, a term we know very well. Micah chapter 1, verse 2, here O peoples, all of you, chapter 3, verse 1, here now, heads of Jacob, and so forth. So we have a number of these, let's call them structural flags, organization. So first of all, give us a little short synopsis, because I want to spend more time on the text than the historical context. But give us a little picture of Micah, the man. Well, (laughs) I wish I could, I suppose. (laughs) I have faith in you, Mark. Come on. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yes. Well, the only thing I know about Micah is, of course, is internal to the text. And so I suppose you could start off by saying, well, verse 8, because of this, I must lament and wail, which means this is sort of a funeral dirge. And it means that he must have wandered around barefoot naked for a while, maybe for the rest of the book, for all I know. And naked probably doesn't mean buck naked to us. It probably means that he doesn't have his outer garments on. But in any event, it's a pretty stark picture. Even Isaiah is described as being wandering around naked like this. And, of course, you know, if we think of him from that standpoint, that's a pretty shocking thing. If somebody decides to come into our church service dressed like this to give a prophetic oracle, we would probably have something to say to him. Um, (laughs) Here's the door. (laughs) Yes. And then the the other thing about him, which I think is interesting, is that 
if you do take things quite literally, and I know these are prophetic oracles, but you know, at the end of Micah 4, which sometimes is described as the beginning of Micah 5, depending on whether you're looking at a Jewish version or a Christian version, sometimes they don't have the same chapter and verses, which is fine since they're not divinely inspired, but they're really convenient. You know, you get the idea that Micah must have been present at the siege of Jerusalem by Sennacherib in 701, and in the middle of it, at the beginning of 5, which I think is rather interesting, is that I wonder whether he's being sarcastic. Mm. There's a siege to the city right now, and all of a sudden he says something like, now, muster yourselves in troops, daughter of troops, they have laid siege against us. Well, that means they're laying siege against us. And then in the middle of that, he decides to sing a song. And of course, by laying siege to them, you know, you're in the middle of siege with the mightiest kingdom on the face of the earth. In fact, the mightiest in the history of the world up to that time, the Assyrian Empire, is now laying siege to this rebel state that has no allies left whatsoever. Then Micah is now going to sing a song trying to muster the troops up to get ready to go and defend themselves. And of course, what he sings there is the famous, you know, Micah 5, 2 and following about the future deliverer. And I'm guessing at that point, it might not have been taken very well by those that are inside. Like, you know, we could probably use you on the city wall there, buddy. You know, your song doesn't seem to be particularly relevant right now. You're talking about a future deliverance when we're, you know, we have this immediate problem. And, but of course, it's easy to read right past that, especially when you're looking for your immediate application. You're not looking to think about what was the context here. And maybe it would be like Davy Crockett, you know, inside the Alamo, deciding to start singing a song about how, you know, <laughs> the Texas is going to be a great, great state and they'll, you know, be part of the great United States someday. And you're thinking, that's really nice that you're singing that, but how about, you know, what's happening right now? So Micah, I think, is an interesting character. We don't have those personal, you know, notes that we have, for example, in the book of Jeremiah and a few about Isaiah here and there. Micah is sort of a, almost a non-person to us. All right, Mark, let me change gears. I want your thoughts and your input on this messianic prophecy that we cursorily go to every Christmas season. We talk about Micah chapter 5, verse 2. But as for you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, do little to be among the clans of Judah. From you, one will go forth for me to be a ruler in Israel. And then we have a number of references that sure seem messianic. She who is in labor has borne a child he will arise and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. This one will be our peace. It continues. He will be a deliverer. Part of the remnant is mentioned again and again. So uh, help us understand how we read that from our messianic affections, if you will. Well, as a historian, I look at that, and I'll put it back in the context of what I was saying. This is actually being prophesized in the middle of the siege. And so it's, to me, it's tremendously ironic that we look at it that way. First of all, they would recognize the fact that Bethlehem, and that it's, we appear that it must be its ancient name, which, Ephrathah, which both of which are found as early as Egyptian Elamarna letters in the late Bronze Age. And so the town is known 
and of course David is from there, and so everyone would know that. That's for sure. You know, but there's some oddities to it. You know, when he says his goings forth are from long ago, from days of eternity, which is pretty much the same thing. You know, the concept of eternity for the Hebrew was very concrete. It just means a really, 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 really long time. It doesn't necessarily mean endless time, although it certainly could. And so if you put all those together, you know, we probably have a better perspective on it than the original hearers would, because we have more historical knowledge, not in terms of the immediate context, but we know what happens afterwards. And so we can tell that there must be an immediate historical context to it, because, of course, when Mike is singing that to them, it has to mean something to them. If it doesn't mean anything to them, what's the use? I look at the same context of Isaiah chapter 7, is that that's in the context of more of a judgment when Ahaz is making those statements, and God is pretty much rebuking him by what he's giving them. And of course, we can look at it from a a much greater context. I think I often look at the prophetic messianic oracles in the same way that I look at somebody quoting Shakespeare. And what I mean by that is that the statements are made apropos to another situation. So, for example, when Matthew makes a statement or whatever, he doesn't mean that the original context has now been expunged. He means that that statement is also made relevant to our context, too, even if Micah would not have been aware of it, because I doubt if Micah is, you know, Mike is just as human as we are. I'm sure that when he's making these prophetic oracles, he doesn't know what he's talking about. That was my next question to you, because we have both ends of, quote, scholarship, close quote, those that will overstate the case and say Micah knew exactly what this meant, to those who will say this has nothing to do with Messianic prophecy. This is a chronological timestamp for what's going on during the siege. So it's interesting, though, because our romance, that's what I say about the Messianic romance we have, you mentioned Isaiah seven fourteen, Micah 5, 2 and following. They're so integral in our view of the birth of Jesus that it's, you know, we want to have good theological sense appreciating it, but at the same time, we don't want to, you know, take something out of context and say, bulldogmatically, this is what it meant. Well, I think that there's no reason why we have to be one or the other. I mean, think about it. How could we be one or the other? As Christians, what have we done with the Old Testament? We have taken the Old Testament and, in many respects, reinterpreted much of it in the context of what Christ has done. It doesn't mean that the original context was wrong. It means right. that it now it can transcend its original context. Both of them are appropriate. A passage that is dear to many believers is Micah 6, verse 8. He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Give us insights on that passage, perhaps contextually and for the believer. Well, in the context, if you think about it, what has Micah been doing? He's been denouncing people who have been oppressing his people, whether it's the rulers, whether it's false prophets, whether it's businessmen. You think of, you know, the beginning of Micah 2, about those who, you know, scheme iniquity, who work out evil on their beds. When morning comes, they do it. They covet fields and they seize them, and they do those things. And then in chapter 3, 
it's clearly a euphemism of cannibalism. I don't think that they're actually eating people, but of course they're literally eating them out of house and homes. And of course the imagery there is just horrific you know, at that point. And so from that standpoint, they're probably all, in a sense, quote unquote, good Judahites who are doing all of the things that they're supposed to be doing. They're still going, you know, like the Pharisees in the New Testament, they're still doing all of the correct rituals you know, they're giving their sacrifices, they're doing all these things. And of course, Micah now finally comes to the bottom of this. What has God wanted from the very beginning? What was his expectation in the Shema in Deuteronomy chapter 6? It was to love God with all your heart and all your might. And of course, Jesus adds the Levitical statement about loving your neighbor as yourself. And so if you think about it, Micah has put all these together. And so what's the bottom line? It's to do justice and love kindness, which in Wakumbly, these three things are things that they have not been doing, the people that he's been talking to. And of course, one of the struggles with this book is that Micah goes back and forth emotionally from judgment and then future hope for the remnant. And this why, of course, I don't think Micah could possibly have stated all these things together in one sitting. He probably would have been emotionally a wreck. From that standpoint, but for the modern Christian, I think the application is the same. You know, what does God expect of you? And of course, he's not saying here that you can't do those other things. It just means that if you do those other things without this bottom line here, justice and kindness, and really the term kindness there, it really is looking at two of God's attributes that are applicable to us, you know, his justice and his mercy. God is a just God and he's a merciful God. And I think of, for example, the passage in Hosea chapter 11, where in that courtroom scene, God, who seems to be the judge and the jury and the prosecuting attorney, is about ready to pronounce judgment on Samaria. And then all of a sudden, about verse 8, he says, I can't do it. My innards are overturned, and they're on fire, and I won't do it. I can't judge them right now. You know, it sounds so strange, but of course it shows that God's a God full of emotion, and that he prefers to use his attribute of mercy, if at all possible. And of course, not long after that, Samaria in the Northern Kingdom still had to be judged because they refused even that. That had a profound impact on me when I understood that. So when I look at Micah chapter 6, God's asking us to do the same thing that he already does. These are divine attributes. And of course, the third one, to walking humbly, is also a divine attribute. And it's not as if Micah's the first one to say these things, that's for sure, but he's putting it in such a brilliant context, in such a stark one, that to me, it's really the key to the whole book. A good friend of mine, Sam Erickson, who's now with the Lord, started the Christian Law or Legal Society many, many years ago. I forget if it's law or legal, CLS. And that was their benchmark, if you will. He said, that is what we do. So, and again, many people, this is an endearing verse to them. My wife loves this verse. And, you know, it says, as a mature Christian, what better could we do than to do justice, right thing the right way, love kindness, and if my memory serves, that is chesed there, loving kindness, the, yes. the loyal kindness of God, which interestingly is used in two fields, his covenant people and his covenant promises, that, that he loves to be yes. loyal to his chosen people and his covenant promises. 
And so to do justice, to execute loyal love and the way we do it, humbly, because he's God and we're not. So anyway, it's a rich text. Let's go to the end of the book, if we will, two passages or two verses that appeal to, again, many folks. Verse 7 of chapter 7, but as for me, I will watch expectantly for the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. And then, of course, the end of the book is a little different tone. But let me just get your thoughts on chapter 7, verse 7. Well, it's interesting. You know, it looks to me like right now that this is somewhat autobiographical, I'm guessing. You know, and of course, we could be wrong about that, but I can take it at face value and assume that Mike is being autobiographical for me. Maybe at the beginning of the chapter when he says, woe is me for I'm like the fruit pickers and the grape gatherers. There's not a cluster of grapes to eat. And so he's seen all the corruption and he's seen what God is going to do about it. And of course, he's horrified by it. You know, some of the prophets say that they saw the vision. And so, you know, who knows how this was given to Micah. But even if he didn't see it, he's certainly horrified by knowing that God is now going to do judgment, and it's going to be a horrific thing. And of course, you know, he's basically saying, you know, the godly person has perished from the land. There's no upright person. And of course, this is hyperbole, but it's probably not far from the truth. You know, everybody's lying for each other in bloodshed. You know, after what he just said in chapter six, you're thinking, wait a minute, you just talked about the fact that, you know, the hope of justice and mercy, and now you're going back to this because these are probably a collection of oracles. But this one seems to fit. And so all these horrible things happen from one through six. And then he finally says, all right, even though this is all happening because of God's character, I'm going to wait on him. And so to me, this is not unlike the end of Habakkuk. You know, when Habakkuk in chapter 2 says he's going to stand there and wait for God's answer, it actually wasn't a good thing. He was basically arguing with God and assuming that, well, I just made an argument that God can't refute, and so now I'm going to wait for his response, because I can't imagine that he would have a response, you know, that would work for what I said. And of course, God responds by saying, I'm going to do something worse than what you expected. I'm bringing Mm -hmm. the Chaldeans down, you know. And then, of course, finally, at the end of the book, he realizes, oh, even if things do not turn out the way I'm expecting them to turn out, the way that I want them to turn out, God wants me to wait on him. And so it's the same thing here, really. You know, what he's saying in seven is that even though all these other terrible things from one through six are happening, and you know, it's even worse than just we're being abused by others. We're being abused by people in our own family. We can't even get away from it. In that previous verse, in verse 6, a son treats his father contemptuously, daughter rises up against mother. In other words, a man's enemies are the men of his own household. So even though the family structure itself is breaking down and I can't escape it, even in my own castle, I'm going to wait on God. You know, what other choice do I have? And so I think it has a wonderful application to the Christian. I think it's the same application that is provided for in the book itself. And so to me, this would also be a message of hope that Israel living in the sixth century and someone singing this, these lyrics to me, when I get down to seven, I think it would have just as powerful a meaning to the Christian or to the sixth century Judahite as it would be to the Christian. It's the same principle. 
And then finally, the book ends on an interesting note. And again, you've already intimated the organization when we're talking about minor prophets can be a bit of a challenge. Timing, was it written later? Was it inserted? And setting those discussions aside, and I appreciate your encouragement to take it at face value, to study it in the context. But we have this, you know, in verse 18, who is a God like you who pardons iniquity? And I always stop when I'm teaching these passages, and I'm overtaken emotionally when I read passages that, you know, he pardons all my iniquity. He forgives my sins for his name's sake. Not for me, for his name's sake. Who are we? Who are we that he would forgive our sins? And passes over the rebellious acts of the remnant, which of course is the key thing here, of his possession. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in unchanging. And again, that's our chesed word, loving kindness. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. Yes, you will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. You will give truth to Jacob, unchanging, a chesed love to Abraham, which you swore to our forefathers from the days of old. Interesting landing place, Mark. Yeah, it sure is, because that shows that God's, you know, again, you know, if you think of the Hesed really in a couple of ways, first of all, of course, it's very personal and very emotional to us when we think of God's loving kindness, but it's also a technical term for his loyalty in his treaty oath. And so he swore in his treaty that he would uphold it, that he would be the God of Jacob forever, no matter what they did. And he, of course, would execute judgment when necessary. So he's the correct covenant God. And the fact that he's doing it for his own sake is really interesting. That I think it's the same thing that it happens. I think it's in Ezekiel 36, where God talks about the fact that he's going to resurrect Israel and the dry bones for his own sake. And of course, Christ says something very similar later on. So from that standpoint, I think it's wonderful. The fact that the sins are hurled into the depths of the sea, I think it's Psalm 103, verse 12, where a similar mode is put forth. And it's just beautiful poetry in 20, where giving truth to Jacob and unchanging love to Abraham, it's not as if you're looking at those two particular characters. Of course, both of them are nicknames for Israel itself. And again, we know that this is going to happen because God's a loyal God He's abiding by his covenant, even when we don't. He's promised to keep the remnant with him. And of course, we can look at it from the same way as believers, as Christian believers. We can look at this in the same way. He does not retain his anger forever. You think of Exodus 34 when Moses, you think Exodus 34 is so odd because here we are, Exodus 32 just happened where the golden calf incident, actually, I think it was a baby bull, but who's arguing? But They've just gone and basically perverted true Yahweh worship by what they've done. God has judged them. And of course, Moses asked, so are we still okay, you and I? And I need to see some of your attributes. And of course, theologians try to figure out what does it mean that God put him in a cleft of a rock? And it says his glory went by. You can see my back, but not my front. And then he starts naming off these attributes some of which are right here. And so I think Micah, when he's providing us that in his mind, certainly is Exodus 34, one of those fundamental things about God's primary attributes, his goodness, his loving kindness, his mercy, 
all of these things that he will continue to do on forever, and he's unchanging. You know, when people talk about God changing his mind or repenting, they've missed the whole point of what that means. That term naham actually is talking about having a very strong emotional response to something. Usually it means that you see someone is in need of pity, and so you give it to them. And so that's God responding to someone who is crying out to him. That doesn't mean he changes his mind because he has new information, but his love is unrepentant. It's almost ironic here in verse 18 is that that's the one thing that you can always count on with him. Dr. Mark Savalas, it's a good place for us to land. Thanks again for so much for your time, for helping us understand some of these books in depth, and God's blessing on you, your teaching, and your ministry, sir. Well, likewise, and I'm really so encouraged that you're doing things like this. I look forward to listening to some of the other lectures, and I applaud you for your ministry, and God be with all of you folks. Michael Easley in Context is fully funded by our listeners. If you are a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation to support our ministry? You can give at michaelincontext.com. In Context is edited, mixed, and mastered by Tim Hull, produced by Hannah Seymour, and music composed by Chad Gates. 